Thank you, Father, that you love us. Thank you for your grace and your goodness to us, allowing us to come here to this place. Father, remove the scales from our eyes that keep us from standing in awe of you. And do that through the power of your spirit, through your word in our hearts this morning for our good and for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the fifth chapter of Ephesians one more time. Ephesians chapter 5. And when you find it, if you would, let's, would you stand with me? I think you typically do this, and, and I have not done this um, while I've been here with you, but let's stand together and, and read this text, and then we'll dive in. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. The portion of scripture to which our attention is drawn this morning is a text we're going to consider under the heading that we have been called to walk in hope. My primary intention for our time together, pardon me while I fix this. I have more trouble with this. You'd think I'd have this figured out by now, but I don't. I'm not very smart. My primary intention for this morning together is really to encourage uh, your heart because of the great truths that are found in this text here in moments of... uh, tragedy or difficulty or great loss, our hearts almost instinctively look to the, to the future to see if there's any cause for hope. Hope, it, it keeps us pressing on, pressing forward. Hopelessness, if that state of hopelessness is really a, a dark, dark place that really we want to keep our hearts away from if, if at all possible. Perhaps when you face the death of someone you love, especially if it's unexpected or untimely, or, or even if we, you endure a colossal financial event or some such trial that all of us either have or will at some point face, in those moments, we, don't we look ahead and we say, there must be a reason for this. Even, even I think, the unsaved world looks at, 
bodies lying in coffins and looks for some reason to, to hope. And, and often the reasons they come up with aren't very good ones, but, but we'll cling to almost anything that gives a glimmer of a brighter future and, and some sort of meaning or purpose to our struggles and our trials. Now this morning, I don't want to just give you hope concerning your own life, however. I want to give you hope concerning your, your church. And I say that not because you're hopeless about it or even that you're in a dark place, but because rather no church is exempt from the need for hope. And the passage before us is, in my opinion, humble though it may be, one of the brightest beacons of hope for the church that's found in the Bible. And it's my prayer that the Lord is going to give us the ability to see and grasp uh, the wonder of the hope that's found here in these verses. So what we're going to do this morning is focus on the relationship between the Lord Jesus and the church, which is called in this text, referred to as his bride. Now, as a theological matter, just to set forth up front, when the Bible speaks of, of a church, there's two senses in which it might do that, and you probably know this, but let me just review these for, for your benefit. The first sense in which the Bible can refer to the church is what is called the, the universal church, and that's composed of every genuine believer across the face of the globe, no matter where they are. If you know Jesus this morning, or, or as Paul might say more accurately, if Jesus knows you this morning, you are a member of the universal church. And that's, I think, the sense in which Paul has uh, in mind, in particular here in Ephesians chapter 5. The second sense in which the Bible uses the word church is to refer to what is called the local church. And the local church is a group of people uh, gathered together to worship God. And, and it happens in a particular locale. In a perfect world, every true believer would be a member of a local church and no unbelievers would be. But this isn't a perfect world and so there are a number of unbelievers that are members of local churches and there are a number of believers that are not a part of a local church. Um, so Providence Community Church is a local church and as such it is no doubt your, your, the desire of your leadership team that all the members here be believers and all the believers here be members and and uh, there's always that tension between actually seeing that come into reality but so so you're here not as the universal church but you are a part of it and just as the universal church has been instituted by god so is the local church god has established it so uh so theoretically, at least, most of us here are members of the universal church, so this text applies to us uh, and also in a real sense to the local church as well. So I just want to get that sort of explanation laid forth before we move along. Now, in this text here that we're looking at, um, we're going to find an incredible description of the relationship between Jesus and the church, and we don't have to time to focus in on all these um, or, or really do justice to this text. But let me just give you in rapid fire order 10 characteristics of the relationship between Christ and the church. Don't even bother trying to write them down, but look at them, lay your eyes on them with me as, as I run through the text quickly, and, and then you'll be able to dig these up later because these are not hidden here in the text. So here's 10 quick characteristics of the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Okay, here we go. Number one, in verse 23, Jesus is the head of the church. 
Secondly, also in verse 23, Jesus is called the Savior of the body. In verse 25, we find that Jesus loves the church. Number four, we find also in verse 25 that Jesus gave himself up for the church. In verse 26, number five, Jesus sanctifies the church. Again, num- uh, number uh, six, in verse 26, Jesus cleanses the church. In number seven, in verse 27, Jesus presents the church to himself. In number uh, sorry, number 8 in verse 27, Jesus removes the spots and wrinkles which makes the church holy and blameless. In verse 29, we find that Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. And in verse 30, we discover that Jesus is united to the church. So there's 10 characteristics of the relationship between Jesus and his bride. And each one of those is, is a gold mine. But what we're going to do this morning is rather just to focus in on a hope that we can find here in the church because of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I do think that it's significant that the language Paul speaks of here is Christ and the church as opposed to Christ and the individual. So we could take all these truths and apply them on an individual, personalized level, but I think it's closer to Paul's intention if we apply these on a church-wide level. We've seen from uh, our study beginning in the opening verses of chapter 4 that Paul is addressing the Ephesians as a body of believers rather than just a collection of individuals. Sometimes we can get so laser-focused on the fact that we have a personal relationship with Jesus that we overlook or we might minimize the fact that Christ has placed us within a church and it's the express desire of Jesus that we grow and flourish within the church. And so you'll notice again in verse 25 that Jesus gave himself up for the church. Paul even expresses the same sentiment in Acts 20, 28 when he says that the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. Jesus, of course, said that he would build the church and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. Jesus could have said he would build me and he would build you and the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against me and they wouldn't prevail against you, but he didn't say it that way, did he? He intended from the very beginning not only to save us, but to make us a part of a church, to make us into a church. So it really shouldn't surprise us that the church is a big deal to Jesus, and it is here also in this text. So what we're going to do is, is I'm going to walk through with you five main points to draw your attention to as we think about what it means that we as the church are called to walk in hope. And so my, my goal here is to really encourage you, okay? Um, some of these, these, these texts in Ephesians 4 and early part of chapter 5 are are difficult and they, they can hit us hard. And, and this morning, I just want to encourage your heart. So here we go. Number one, I want you to notice the illustration of hope. And this is from verses 22 to 24 and also in verse 28 and 29. There are two parallel trains of thought that run through this text. You can see them rather easily. The one is the relationship between Jesus and the church and the other is the relationship between a husband and a wife. And Paul is chasing both of these down at the same time throughout this this text. And he's showing us how one illustrates the other. For our purposes this morning, we're going to focus largely on the relationship between Christ and the church, though we'll make a few points 
concerning marriage perhaps along the way. Now there's two dynamics in the marriage relationship and in the church relationship that Paul is going to really focus in on. And the first is that of submission and the second is that of love. And so he applies submission to the church. Church, submit to Jesus and he applies love to Christ, right? In verse 25, Christ loved the church. It shouldn't really be earth-shattering, I don't think, to say that the church ought to submit to Christ. It is, on the other hand, earth-shattering in most places, I think, to say that a wife ought to submit to her husband. And the reason for that, I think, is quite obvious, and I'm not going to actually point to feminism or egalitarianism, though perhaps we could with good reason, but I think, though, I, I really think that the reason the phrase, wives, submit to your husbands, can be so painful, such a painful pill for us to swallow is, frankly, that we husbands are so stinking imperfect that, that we'll take our God-given authority and use it for our own benefit instead of the benefit of our wife. <clears throat> so let me just ask a rather simple question and work through this with you, not in the context of marriage, but, but rather in the context of Christ and the church, where Christ is the perfect husband. And, and here's the question. Why is it that the church should submit to Christ? And, and before we answer that, we, we need to remember that whatever answer we give needs to also apply to a wife submitting to her husband. So we can't just say the church sub, should submit to Christ because he's God, because although that's true, it doesn't actually fit the illustration Paul is using. And, and the answer is simply this. Jesus is going to do something for his bride that she cannot do for herself. He's going to do that for her benefit, and that is going to come back around for his own glory. We'll flush that out a little more as we go along, but in verse 28, you have a very fascinating propositional statement. Look at what Paul says. He says in the end of verse 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. Very interesting phrase. Now, there's two levels in which that's true. The first level is this, the, the husband who loves his wife loves himself because his wife is himself. And, and she is him because, because in verse 31, they are one flesh. So if your wife is you and you love your wife, you are loving yourself. And the second level in which this statement is true is this, when you love your wife, you stir up within her love you stir up love within her for you, and you are loved by her. Now, some pious person is no doubt going to say, you can't just love your wife so she loves you back because that's selfish. And to that, I would simply refer you to the Apostle John who said, we love him because he first loved us. And we ask the question, did God actually love us with the intention that we would love him back? And I would say, absolutely he did. He did that for our good and for his glory. So, so why does the church sub submit to Christ? Well, the church submits to Christ because the church needs to let Jesus exercise his headship in order to make the church glorious. Jesus, we're going to see, is the one who beautifies his bride, and she needs to let him do that. That's his job. Let him do it. Husbands, love your wives in such a way that they understand you have their good, not your own at heart. So, so the reason, again, that that phrase, wives submit to your husbands, can be such a tough pill to swallow is that so many husbands have taken that phrase and used it to make a slave out of their wife. And that's not the point. The point is 
let your husband, wives, wives, let your husband exercise his authority in order to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That takes a lot of trust, and I think there's a lot of husbands who have violated the trust their wives have placed in them by using and abusing this authority for their own benefit. But as we read through this text, we're going to see that Jesus uses his authority solely for the well-being of his bride. And so that's the illustration of our hope, that illustration of marriage. Now let's look at the grounds of hope, beginning in verse 25. What reason do we have to be hopeful in any way? Or what reason do we have to be optimistic about the condition and the future of a, the church? Let's just be realistic for a moment, okay? Churches have problems. There are churches that couldn't care less about doctrine or sound teaching, and they have problems. And there are churches like this one and a host of others that think deeply and well about the things of God, and they care about good, sound doctrine. And you know what? They have problems too. Um, every church does. Good ones have problems and bad ones have problems. And often the problems are really significant. We have personality conflicts. We have philosophical conflicts in the direction of the church. We have doctrinal conflicts and we have the stress of finding ourselves increasingly on the fringes of our culture. We have financial pressures. We have the destruction that's wreaked by the most egregious of sins that somehow manage to find themselves, find their way right into the midst of the church. For instance, it's a dreadful thing that children get abused, isn't it? Uh, but it's a thousand times more dreadful when it happens at the hands of professing believers. Divorce is miserable no matter where you find it, but it's, I think, far worse when it pops up in the church. And it doesn't, doesn't it so often seem like as soon as one problem comes and you finally work through it and it finally goes away, it's only just a matter of time before the next one comes along. I, I, I may be oversensitive, but I can almost see them coming now. I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's serving the Lord in South America, and, and he's working with a church down there. And, uh, and he called me, and he said, he said, Brother, I got approached this week by three teenage girls who want to do interpretive dance during the song service. And, and you know, everything within me screams, Heck no! Don't just... just just, just a bad idea on so many levels. But there's a other part of me that says, you know, something like this can just explode into uh, a massive conflict overnight. These uh, feelings get hurt through a situation like this. And, and, and it was just, this is the struggle of ministry and church. There's just problems that potentially pop up almost anywhere. So what grounds do we actually have to hope that the church is actually going to make it? We find that in verse 25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If Jesus loves the church to the extent that he was willing to take on humanity, to live among us, to suffer and die while absorbing God's wrath for our sin, then there's actually hope that if he loves us that much, we're going to make it. He's not going to give up on us. A few weeks ago, I said something to the effect of, you know how strong your commitment is to each other when you want to get out of it. And if that's true for us, I think it's also true for the Lord Jesus. 
There are wonderful passages concerning the love of God in the Bible. Consider this. In Exodus chapter 34, God is passing before Moses, and Moses hears a voice, and this is what the voice says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins. First Chronicles 16.34 has a very familiar refrain in the Old Testament. His love endures forever. Psalm 13 is the song of a man who is feeling as though God has forgotten him. And, and if you feel at times like God has forgotten you, let me just encourage you to jot down Psalm 13 and spend some time in it. It's a very short psalm, six verses, I believe. But in verse 5 of Psalm 13, the psalmist says this, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. As long as Jesus loves his church, there is hope. Amen? I, th I think that's fair to say. It doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. And it doesn't mean even that in the context of a local church, because this was the case even with Ephesus, we find this in Revelation 2, it doesn't mean that Jesus won't remove the candlestick if a church ceases to be a church. But Jesus loves his church with a love that never ceases. And so there is, I think, grounds for great hope for the church. Number three, let's look at the work of hope in verse 26. By the, by the phrase work of hope, I'm referring to the work done by Jesus in the church for the purpose of a future glorified state. Um, it's, again, expressed in our, our sentiments when we say things like, there, there must be a reason these things are happening. Now, in the text, we're going to see a logical progression taking place. Verse 26 begins with the word, that. And verse 27 begins with the words, so that. So something is happening so that this happens, so that this happens, so that this happens. There's, there's a chain reaction of events. So let's, begin, let's go back to verse 25. And, and where it starts. In verse 25, Christ loved the church. How much did he love her? He gave himself up for her. No greater, there is no greater love that anyone has than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus did that. But then you notice that Jesus doesn't actually stop there because Jesus' love has a, has a goal in mind. His love doesn't stop at the cross. It goes on. Jesus' love wasn't just to impart justification. There's, there's more here. So in verse 26, Jesus has given himself up for the church that he might sanctify her. That he might sanctify her. He has given himself up with the purpose of sanctifying her. Now, big word, sanctification. Let me just walk through that with you quickly. There's, there's two ways in which we can understand the, the word sanctification. On the one hand, we have the purifying work of, the sanct of sanctification. That's largely, I think, what's in view here. Uh, and so when we speak of things like sanctifications, often we simply mean we sin less and do what is right more. That's a process. I still sin, but I'm thankful I don't sin as much as I used to. I'm also more aware of my sin than I used to be, which is really troubling because I feel like I probably sin more. But by God's grace, there are certain sins that I commit less and less all the time. 
Um, Jesus' love expresses itself to us in this burning desire and intention that we as a church uh, and his church would cease from sin. He has cleansed her with the washing of water, with the word, the verse concludes, but that process of purification is also ongoing. Uh, You can spend some time in John 13 and Jesus' words about baths and and getting your feet washed to kind of understand the relationship between uh, justification and sanctification in that sense. But the other part of sanctification is is Jesus setting his bride aside for himself. Let me go back to marriage and illustrate it this way. Uh, on my left hand, on my fourth finger, there is a ring. Um, it's, it's actually not the ring that I got on my wedding day because I lost that. I suspect it's in a heat duct in uh, Greenville, Michigan somewhere, but I can't prove that, and so there it lies. And so I got a different one. Um, but this is my, my wedding ring, and, and many of you have them. My wife has a ring on her finger. When you're in a, in a marriage ceremony, you know, you're standing there, you're getting married before God and the witnesses, and the ring part comes, and the preacher says something about the rings are round, and they represent love. It goes on and on and on. It doesn't have a beginning and end, and all that sort of sappy nonsense that just, like, you know, it, it sounds good at the time. It seems very impressive. Um, but here's, here's really what, what this ring means. It, it means I'm married. It means you can't be my wife because I already have one. And my wife's ring means the same thing. You can't be her husband because she has one. She already has a husband, so she's not here with me this morning. But I don't really have to worry that, that she's going to go into to Walmart to get some stuff for, for lunch or whatever, and, uh, and somebody's going to see her and say, I think I'd like to take her for my wife because she has a ring on that tells everybody she has been spoken for. That's the picture of sanctification. For the kids, my dad explained it this way, and it's always helped me. If I had a, an ice cream cone in my hand, I, I'd just go and get an ice cream cone, and I set it here, any one of you could come and, and enjoy it. But if I were to take the ice cream cone and lick it, not just on one side, but all the way around it, all of a sudden nobody wants it. But I still don't mind having it, okay? Because it's mine, and you would know it's mine. And it would be, in that sense, sanctified to me. It has become my ice cream cone, and I could leave it and nobody would touch it. Now the church is the bride of Christ. But the church is often tempted to cheat on her betrothed. Paul makes reference back in verse 5 of chapter 5 to idolatry, loving and worshiping that which is not God. Imagine how dreadful it would be to be betrothed to someone who has a wandering eye. And Jesus is in the business of removing the church's wandering eye until she has only eyes for him, and that is sanctification. And so these two aspects of sanctification are related as the church increasingly abandons other lovers for the Lord Jesus, she will increasingly abandon her love for sin because these things are detrimental to the relationship. So we have great hope that the Lord Jesus is at work in the church. He has washed her. He has taken the stain of guilt away and removed it. He has set the church apart to be and He is correcting the wandering eye of the church until she only has eyes for him. And so that is the work of hope.
Fourthly, let's look at the presentation that is hoped for in verse 27. Let me just make a confession at this point, and that is this. After I preached the opening verses of chapter 4 a few weeks back and realized that I might have the chance to spend some more time with you, I really wanted to just skip straight ahead to chapter 5 and verse 27, but then I thought it really wouldn't be right to skip to it, and so I tried to space things out so I could get here. So I've been, I've been looking forward to getting to verse 27 for several weeks now, and I hope this uh, doesn't let us down. In verse 27, we have a grand presentation that Jesus is going to present to himself the church in all her glory. Jesus is the presenter, and Jesus is receiving the presentation. The bride has been prepared. Remember earlier in chapter 5 and even back into chapter 4 when Paul kept saying things like fitting and proper, and, and he talks about the church growing up into maturity. Well, in verse 27, the church is all grown up, and she's being presented to her husband. She is being walked down, if you will, the heavenly aisle. We have a phrase in our culture. Uh, it's, it's a fun phrase, and, and you guys will appreciate this, because it's the phrase marrying up. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever? It's when you marry somebody who you don't deserve, okay? Somebody who's, who's better than you. I've married up immensely. I skipped like a lot of stages when I married my wife. Uh, and uh, I, I remind her of that, and I ask her forgiveness because she married down so far. You pray that your kids will, uh, will marry up or, or they will marry someone who is worthy of them. I do. I, I don't want my kids to marry bums, and neither do you. Here's an amazing thought. Jesus is pictured here as marrying the church, and I want to suggest to you that when Jesus marries the church, he does not marry down. The church, the bride of Christ, is full of splendor. The New American says she is glorious. She is without spot. She is without wrinkle. She is holy. She is blameless. She is a bride fitting for the king of the universe. And that just boggles my mind. When I look at the condition of the church today, the universal church, I say, how is it even possible that we could get from here where we are now to there, where we are in verse 27. And the answer is simply this, Jesus does it. The ver verse 27 says that Jesus presents the church to himself. It's, it's really an amazing picture. He has prepared the bride. He has dressed her. He has removed her spots. He has removed the wrinkles from her clothing. If the Bible didn't actually say that Jesus would and could make the church absolutely pure, I frankly don't even think I could believe it would be even possible. At least not as long as I'm a member of it. It's not possible that it could be this glorious. But Jesus is going to take his bride by the hand and present her to himself. And I think we're not... Uh, stretching the text too far to say that all of the heavenly host is going to say that is a bride most appropriate for Jesus. There are going to be no whispers in the uh, heavenly audience that, that says, you know, he really could have done better. Because the reality is that Jesus has, will have prepared his bride 
absolutely perfectly, and she will not detract from his glory at all. She will complement it. All creatures, great and small, will say, look at what Jesus has created for himself. She is marvelous. Jesus has loved the church. Jesus has given himself up for her. He has washed her. He has sanctified her. And, and all that, the, that Jesus allows the church to endure by way of persecution, by way of pain, by way of angst and sorrow and conflict, that's all leading up to this glorious moment when he presents her to himself and everyone will, will say this is a glorious groom and this is a glorious bride. It's, a, it's an amazing picture. Now, I can't help but insert a, a point of application here. I, again, I can't prove this from the text, but gentlemen, I strongly suspect that the day is coming when we will stand before the Lord Jesus and he will say to you and he will say to me, I want you to present the bride you have prepared. God has given us husbands uh, a biblical authority over our wives so that we could be a part of making them glorious. God has instructed our wives to submit to us, which I take to simply mean, uh, he's telling the wives, let, let your husbands do what I have asked them to do. And I think perhaps that just as Jesus is going to present the bride that he has made to himself, we will present our brides to Christ. We, we talk, don't we talk about our wives being a gift from God? Don't we tell our wives, I'm, I'm so thankful for you. We understand that God has given them to us. Why on earth did God give them to us? I think in part so that we could be like Jesus in the process of doing this in a smaller level, making them presentable uh, on that day. And, and I wonder sometimes what condition my wife will be in when I make that presentation. When Jesus says, you know that, that, that lady I gave you? What does she look like? What, what have you done with her? She's my daughter and I gave her in your care. What does she look like? What, what, what have you done with her? I think we will stand accountable before God Almighty for the condition of our brides. They are given to us to nourish, to cherish, to love, to give ourselves up for, and to make glorious. And the day is coming when our labors as husbands, such as they are, are going to be revealed. It's, it's a good reminder of how serious Jesus takes his relationship to his bride in view of this coming presentation. And, and I need to also take my relationship with my own bride very seriously in, in view of that day. But isn't it a great point of hope that the church is one day going to be a bride that is fitting for the glorious Lord Jesus himself? I hope you can find some hope there. If you can't, I honestly don't think I can think of anything more glorious than verse 27 to help encourage our hearts to press forward. Let me just close with the assurance of our hope from verse 30 to 32. We already talked about the love of Christ as the grounds of our hope, and this is similar, but it's a little bit different. Beginning in verse 30, Paul says this, uh, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
what assurance do we actually have that these things are going to happen? We have the love of Christ, but we have something else here. We have the doctrine that the church is the body of Christ, that the church is one flesh with Christ. This is the doctrine of union with Christ, and it is incredibly powerful assurance. Our union with Christ is so intimate that we are actually called, in verse 30, members of his body. We have hope that the church is going to be glorious because Christ obviously is going to be glorious. And there's a very real sense in which we are so united to him that he will not be glorious until he has made us glorious as well because we are a part of him. And again, we don't do that under our own strength. He does that. Now, I don't want to stretch this too far. This is a thread that if we pull really hard, we're going to wind up in, in, a, in a weird place. But as I pondered Paul's quotation in verse 31 from Genesis, that phrase, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, that struck me in the sense that Jesus is often spoken of as having left heaven to gather up a people for himself. There's a very real sense in which Jesus has left his father to be joined to his wife, just as a husband will leave father and mother to be joined to his wife. Yeah, and you can see why we wouldn't want to pull too hard on that, but it, I think it's fascinating that Paul puts it in here. Jesus, of course, as God, could never leave the Father. But if you spend some time in John chapter 17, you're, you're going to find Jesus using almost unbelievable language to describe how intimate he is with his people, which people we are by grace through faith. And so Jesus has become united to his wife. We have great assurance that as a church, there's, there's hope for us. <laughs> we can make it because we have a glorious bridegroom who is, has made us one with him and his glory will be complete when he completes our glory. So don't lose hope in the church because to do so would frankly be to lose hope in the Lord Jesus himself. He is deeply invested in the church. He is deeply committed to making his church glorious. Never forget that you, as the people of God gathered here, are the church of Christ. And, and as long as you are, you are never without grounds for hope. You are never without some assurance of hope. This, this day of presentation is coming. Press on to that day. Press on to the end. Submit yourselves to the headship of Christ. Let him do his work of sanctifying you. As painful as that is at times, because someday we're, we're all going to be together with the faithful saints of all the ages, enjoying being a part of that glorious presentation to the Lord Jesus himself. It'd be, it's almost unimaginable that we could be fashioned together as a fitting and appropriate bride for Christ, but it's true, so don't lose heart. We've been given great hope and let me just encourage you one last time to walk in that hope. Father, thank you for these, these verses. Thank you for the great hope that is ours because of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has set about this task of making the church glorious. And thank you for having called us to be a part of 
that church. I pray that you would bless these dear people richly. I thank you so much for the privilege that has been mine to come and to share with them over these last several weeks from your word. And and thank you for their patient endurance of my preaching. And uh, I pray that you bless them richly. Continue your work of sanctifying them and making them into a glorious bride appropriate for the Lord Jesus himself. And we look forward to that great and glorious day when the work will be complete, the glory will be finalized, and we will take the hand of our beloved and live with him in intimacy and union forever and ever. May it come soon. Give us strength to persevere to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.